Hello friends and welcome to this edition of the Sioux City Journal for this Monday, March 6, 2023. Reader today is Steve Sowerman. And you are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading and Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. Our first story comes to us from Chris Stunker, who writes for the Lincoln Journal Star. Alt N, not a candidate for Superfund designation, EPA official tells concerned residents. This story comes to us uh, with a dateline of Ashland. An Environmental Protection Agency attorney who oversees enforcement in Nebraska said it's unlikely Alt N, the former biorefinery near Mead, that use pesticide-coated seed to make ethanol will be designated a Superfund site. David Kozad, the director of EPA Region 7's Enforcement and Compliance Assurance Division, told more than a dozen people at a community meeting in Ashland last week, the agency believes the seed companies that sent Alt N their unused products are ultimately responsible for the cleanup. We have a fundamental principle that we operate under when we're working on this kind of a site, and that's that the polluters should pay, not the taxpayers, Kozad told Saunders County residents, residents, and members of a research team studying the former ethanol plant's impact on the environment and human health. Under the Comprehensive Environmental Response Compensation Liability Act, otherwise known as CERCLA, CERCLA, passed by Congress in 1980, the Environmental Protection Agency has the authority to clean up contaminated sites or order the parties responsible for the contamination to do the cleanup or reimburse the government for costs incurred. Kozad said in the case of Alt-N, the law better known as Superfund would likely not apply because the pesticides found in high concentrations at that plant are not deemed hazardous, limiting the EPA's authority to deal with them. As one of the toughest sites he's worked on during his 30 years at the agency, according to COZAM, both the EPA and the Nebraska Department of Environmental Energy believe responsibility rests with the agrochemical companies that sent discarded seed to the Alt-N at no cost. Six of those companies, Corteva Agriscience, Surgenta, Bayer, Bex Superior Hybrids, Ag Reliant, and Winfield Solutions, agreed in June 2021 to shoulder the cost and burden of cleaning up the site through a voluntary cleanup program that allows third parties to assume responsibility at no cost to taxpayers. The Nebraska Voluntary Cleanup Program was created in 2006 through a memorandum of agreement between the Department of Environmental and Energy and the Environmental Protection Agency to facilitate the expeditious cleanup of contaminated sites. According to the State Environmental Department, it also offers protection from federal Superfund enforcement for those eligible sites that successfully complete cleanup through the voluntary program. After enrolling in the program, the so-called Alt-N Facility Response Group hired Newfields, an environmental engineering and construction firm, to oversee the remediation efforts. And according to attorneys representing the companies, 
They have spent more than $28 million since assuming responsibility for the site two years ago. COZAD said the EPA believes the environmental, or excuse me, the voluntary program is the right approach for the unique situation at Alton and said the agency is 100% in support of NDEE bringing in the lead on this project or being in the lead on this project while it continues to offer technical and legal support. There are, under federal laws, several ways in which the seed companies are responsible for cleaning up this contamination, he said. They have chosen to carry out that responsibility through the voluntary cleanup plan, which we support. And as long as they continue to work and make progress through that cleanup plan, I think we're comfortable with that approach, he added. Several individuals who took part in last week's meeting with the EPA Region 7 officials said they did not share COZAD's confidence in the approach to the cleanup, however. John Schrader, a retired veterinarian and research scientist, said many residents who live near Alton felt the Department of Environmental and Energy failed to act with urgency in bringing the ethanol plant to heal when it was obvious an environmental crisis was taking shape. NDEE has not fostered much goodwill in the way that they have handled this from the beginning, Schrader said. I don't think there's a lot of trust here. Both she and Stan Kaiser, whose property six miles downstream from Alton was the collection point for pesticide-contaminated wastewater, which was running away from the facility in violation of state environmental regulations. They also said the slow rate of progress has yet to stop pesticide pollution from moving off of the site. Researchers from the University of Nebraska and Creighton University found concentrations of pesticides in streams and ditches running away from the plant that have subsided in the two years since Alt-N shut down, but have also discovered neocondinoids in blood and urine samples in detectable levels of soil taken near the water table and in dust and air samples gathered from area homes. Schrader, in an email to the EPA that initiated the meeting, said until the contaminated material was properly disposed of, she felt like it was living on a nuclear waste dump waiting for the radioactivity to fade. Last month, two years after state regulators ordered Alton to stop pumping wastewater, into its damaged lagoon system, the Department of Environment and Energy approved a plan to pump treated wastewater with reduced concentrations of pesticides to area farmland. <clears throat> the seed companies are also expected to submit a plan for disposing of nearly 100,000 tons of pesticide-laden wet cake, sludge, and other solids now entombed under cement and clay the second of three expected phases of the remediation effort later this spring. Meanwhile, state and federal regulators are anticipating a third plan looking at addressing groundwater and soil affected by Alton's ethanol production in the surrounding area. However, the timeline for when that plan could be submitted and approved is not clear. We are at the third stage of this process and they're not even through the first stage yet, said Kaiser whose private well that supplies his family's farm has shown the presence of neocondoitides, but far below levels deemed concerning for human health. 
so I don't know when our stage is going to get cleaned up. COSAT said the work done to control stormwater runoff, minimize dust and airborne emissions, and other activities has stabilized the facility, and said the facility response group has been successful in reducing the amount of pesticides present in the wastewater. But he also acknowledged that there is often tension on environmental cleanup projects between doing it fast and getting it right, and said the methodical approach is often the best. You don't want to go down a route on a cleanup approach that isn't ready because you rushed it, he said, adding that he has full faith in the State Environmental Department to continue managing the project, and he believes the solid waste will be addressed at the same pace and have the same outcome as the wastewater. In December, COZAD and others from the EPA met with Jim Macy, who is director of the Department of Environment and Energy, State Senator Bruce Bostelman of Brainerd, he represents Saunders County, and about 10 residents of Mead to address their concerns. At that meeting, according to multiple people who attended, members from the community told the EPA they did not want Alt-N to be named a Superfund site. That was news to many who live outside of Meade's village limits, especially those living downwind or downstream of the ethanol plant, or close to where wet cake or wastewater has been land applied, who are not part of the monthly meetings. In a statement to NDEE, uh, excuse me, in a statement, NDEE said it has hosted two public information sessions and three public hearings as it considered renewing permits or approving remedial action plans, and they keep the public updated via their website and public records portal. The department said it has chosen to not invite more residents to its monthly meetings for a reason. Quote, the Mead community group is the most directly affected by the Alt-N site. NDEE wants to be sure that community members are informed when they see activity taking place at the facility, unquote. But residents and members of the Pervalian Group, a coalition of researchers, advocates, and community members that has coordinated a response to the environmental crisis said, the problem created by Alt-End extends well beyond Mead. It is questionable, quote, it is questionable for any state or federal agency to claim that Alt-End is primarily a vigil a village of Mead problem, and to justify meeting with a select group as the only affected people, said John Shales, a professor of biology at Creighton University who is part of the research team studying the plant's impacts. This unique environmental catastrophe is a Saunders County and a Nebraska problem, he said. Drainage channels that collected and moved wastewater from Alton eventually joined with the Platte River near Ashland, and ultimately the Missouri River, Shales explained, while high concentrations of neononchondroidide pesticides have been located in areas where wet cake was dumped. Former State Senator Al Davis, who is now a registered lobbyist for the Nebraska chapter of the Sierra Club, said, the closed-door meetings are a breathtaking breach of trust by the State Environmental Department. There is no justification for NDEE 
to hold private and secret informational meetings with a small select group while excluding other victims of this disaster as well as the media, Davis said. All citizens across Nebraska deserve timely and accurate information about this disaster so as to make the best decisions about how to protect themselves and their families from harm. Jody Weebly, whose efforts to draw attention to All to End started in 2018, is part of a small group of Mead residents who meet monthly with officials from the Department of Environment and Energy and representatives from the seed companies. Now that they have a direct line to the ear of the entities responsible for cleaning up the site, Weebly said the town doesn't want to lose that access. I think that we have a working relationship with NDEE where they trust us, Newfields trusts us, and nobody wants to upset that apple cart, Weebly said. Bostelman, who has taken part in the meeting, said he believes the current process is working. The community leaders are supportive of it. Cleanup is happening and has been happening, so we need to continue down that path, he said. I think we've come a long way. There's more to be done, obviously, but we're going down that path. The question of whether or not Alton would qualify to be designated as a Superfund site has lingered since the environmental concerns at the plant first gained national attention two years ago. The residents of Mead are no strangers to the federal government's environmental cleanup program. The EPA named the former Nebraska Ordnance Plant a national priority in the mid-1990s after several chemical solvents and explosive residues were discovered to have leached into the groundwater. Since that time, the United States Army Corps of Engineers has managed an extensive network of monitoring pumps and filters to clean an estimated 100 billion gallons of groundwater at a cost of more than $140 million to date. To Schrader, living near an existing Superfund cleanup for two decades has made her appreciate the expertise, implementation, and monitoring that the EPA can apply to point source pollution and is something that she said should be replicated for Alt-M. We are in a desperate need of federal help in this situation, she said. But Kozad said the type of pollution in Alt-N's case, agricultural chemicals, is not considered a hazardous substance under CERCLA, which limits the EPA's legal authority to use the program. The EPA has another tool, the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act, or RCRA, governing the disposal of solid waste that COSAT said could be used if state or federal regulators felt Alten or the C companies are slow walking progress or beginning to withdraw from the voluntary program early. Under one proposal of RCRA, Section 7003, the EPA can order anyone who has contributed to the past or present handling, storage, treatment, transportation, or disposal of any solid or hazardous waste that presents an intimate and substantial endangerment to health or the environment to clean up that waste. We think the seed companies, by providing the seed at no charge to the ethanol producer, contributed through the disposal of solid waste to creating an endangerment that they are responsible for, Kozad said. If push came to shove, I think we would be prepared to use that authority, but not Superfund. 
In late November, the EPA used the RCRA statute to order ESE Alcohol, a small biofuel plant that began operating in western Kansas in 1998, as well as Pioneer Hybrid International, a subsidiary of Corteva, to clean up several thousand tons of pesticide-contaminated wet cake. Pioneer supplied ESE alcohol with 1.3 million bushels of unused treated seed between 2018 and 2021, according to the EPA, while the ethanol plant had land applied nearly 20,000 tons of wet cake in 2020 and 2021 combined. A spokesman for Cortivas said the company and the ethanol plant are voluntarily working with the EPA to evaluate and determine if there is a need for remediation on the land on which wastewater and solids were applied by ESE alcohol. Cozed said, while the situations are vastly different, the state of Kansas turned over enforcement to EPA. He believes the same authority would apply at Alt-N. He said the RCRA law incentivizes the seed companies to stay in the voluntary cleanup program. I believe they are committed to this for the long haul, he said. I think that was not clear at the beginning, but it is clear now. Our next story comes to us from Nick Hytrek. The 185th receives a Meritorious Unit Award. The 185th Air Refueling Wing, Iowa National Guard, has received the Meritorious Unit Award for its participation in a mission to help resettle refugees from Afghanistan. The award announced by the National Guard Bureau honored the Sioux City Unit's actions in 2021 when the Iowa Air Guard received short notice for support of Operation Allies Refuge and Operation Allies Welcome. Iowa National Guard members were stationed at Fort Dix in New Jersey, where they helped with logistics and sustainment in support of Afghan refugee resettlement. Wing Commander Colonel Sonia Morrison congratulated 185th members at a Saturday ceremony in which more than 100 members were recognized for their contributions. Some people spend their lives looking for a job or a mission or a connection that they may never find. I truly believe that we have that at our unit, Morrison said in a news release from the 185th. The 132nd Wing in Des Moines also received a Meritorious Unit Award, which is given to recognize organizations for outstanding heroism in combat, as well as outstanding achievement or service in direct support of combat operations. Next, we have the latest Woodbury County court report before Judge Todd Deck. Uh, Circuse Alois, age 21, Sioux City, third degree burglary, second offense, sentence March 2, deferred judgment, two years probation. Uh, Sharon Alicia Blunt, age 40, Sioux City, second degree fraudulent practice, sentence March 2, deferred judgment, two years probation. Dexter James Lloyd Noir, age 33, Sergeant Bluff, operating without owner's consent, sentenced February 27th, 20 days jail. Before Judge Jeffrey Neary, uh, Donika Joel Walker, age 29, Sioux City, possession with intent to deliver a controlled substance, sentenced February 27, 10 years prison suspended, two years probation. 
Christian Javier Tenero, age 19, Sioux City, felon in possession of a firearm, sentenced February 27, deferred judgment, two years probation. Casey Lee Mammon, age 41, Correctionville, Iowa, second degree theft, sentenced February 27th, deferred judgment, two years probation. Joshua Edgar Parker, age 46, Sioux City, domestic abuse assault, sentenced February 28th, deferred judgment, two years probation. Stephen Jean Lundgren, age 38, Sioux City, possession with intent to deliver a controlled substance, sentenced March 1st, 10 years prison. Isaac M. Schellinger, age 41, Washtaw, Iowa, second degree burglary, sentenced March 1st, 10 years prison suspended, three years probation. Timothy Brian Bailey, age 43, James, Iowa, second degree theft, first degree theft, driving while license barred, sentenced March 1st, 10 years prison, suspended, three years probation. Leslie John Cornier, age 32, Sioux City, possession of a controlled substance, third offense, sentenced March 2, five years prison, suspended, two years probation. Our next story, proposal would let Nebraska lawmakers serve 12 years before being term limited out. One of the legislature's newest members argued Friday that Nebraskans would be better served if state lawmakers would stay in office longer. Senator Rob Dover of Norfolk made the case while introducing the proposal, a constitutional amendment, to allow senators a third consecutive four-year term. The resolution, LR22CA, would amend the legislative term limits proposal added to the Nebraska Constitution in the year 2000. The current provision limits lawmakers to two consecutive four-year terms, although they can serve again after sitting out at least four years. I introduced this to ensure the citizens of Nebraska are effectively represented in the legislature, Dover said. We're supposed to understand the complexities of the state government and defend the people and make wise decisions. He told members of the legislature's executive board that the harms caused by term limits were a common theme among people he met after being appointed to the legislature last summer. He said it takes time for new senators to learn about issues, build relationships, and figure out how to get things done within the legislative process. Lawmakers get term limited out of office just as they become most knowledgeable and effective. The proposal drew support from both businesses and agricultural groups. Barry Kennedy, speaking for the Omaha, Lincoln, and State Chambers of Commerce, said that after the 2024 election, 32 of the 49 state senators will have two years or less of experience. No well-run business managing several billion dollars worth of activity arbitrarily dismisses members of the management team or the board of directors after two years, he said. Kennedy said the proposal, three-year term limit, would be a good way to retain knowledge in the legislature and help maintain the balance of power between the legislative and the executive branches of government. He said he doesn't believe voters would support a complete repeal of term limits. Al Davis, a former senator, testified for the Nebraska Farmers Union and the Sierra Club. Jay Ferris spoke on behalf of the Nebraska Farm Bureau 
and groups representing corn growers, pork producers, and soybean farmers. No opponents testified at the hearing on Friday. But Paul Jacob, the former president of the United States Term Limits, which led efforts to pass Nebraska's term limits, has already started fighting uh, the bill through his latest group, Liberty Initiative Fund. The group set out mailers recently opposing a change in the current term limits and distributed a news release saying that 70% of Nebraska voters oppose the proposal. The release noted that Nebraskans soundly defeated a constitutional amendment in 2012 that would have extended the limit to three terms. The proposal was on the ballot along with a measure to increase pay for state senators who get $12,000 a year. The pay increase was also defeated. Dover has 39 co-sponsors for his proposal. Senator Tom Breeze of Albion, the chairman of the executive board, is not among them. He said he believes the current two-term limit is consistent with the idea of having citizen legislators and does not believe voters would support a change. I think Nebraskans are reluctant to enhance the power of incumbency, he said. The legislature has been operating under term limits since 2006. When the first group of lawmakers were barred from seeking re-election, a handful of senators have returned to the legislature after being term limited out and waiting four or eight years. They include former Senator Ernie Chambers of Omaha, the state's longest serving lawmaker, and the only one so far to be term limited out twice. Senators Ray Angular of Grand Island and Danielle Conrad of Lincoln are in the legislature serving for a second time. Former State Senator Steve Lathrop returned for one term, but opted against seeking re-election. Senator Richard Pals of Omaha died two years into his new term, and Senator Mike Flood was re-elected to Congress partway through his new term. Our next story, George Thorogood bringing his Bad All Over the World tour to the Orpheum Theater. Uh, George Thorogood and the Destroyers will bring their Bad All Over the World, 50 Years of Rock, to the Orpheum Theater, located at 528 Pierce Street, on July 19th. Known for such hits as Bad to the Bone, and Who Do You Love, and many more, George Thorogood and the Destroyers have sold more than 15 million albums and performed more than 8,000 times over the last five decades. Tickets for this show will go on sale at 10 o'clock in the morning, Friday, at the OrpheumLive.com website, or you can visit the Prime Bank box office at the Tyson Events Center. Our next story, a jury finds a South Sioux City man guilty of kidnapping. A South Sioux City man has been found guilty of holding two women against their will in separate incidents and raping them. At the conclusion of a five-day trial in the United States District Court in Sioux City, a jury on Friday found Arjun Ahmed, age 26, guilty of two counts of kidnapping. A sentencing date has not yet been sent, set. Ahmed met with a woman he had met on a dating site on September 16, 2020. Instead of taking her to breakfast, as the two had agreed, Ahmed took the woman to Bacon Creek Park, where he forced the woman from his car, 
walked her to a secluded spot and raped her. DNA evidence collected from the woman and a used condom left at the scene matched a sample collected from Ahmed, court documents said. Ahmed also was charged with an August 2019 incident in which he picked up a woman at the Hard Rock Hotel and Casino in Sioux City to give her a ride home, but instead drove to a remote location in Sioux City, South Sioux City, refused to let her out of the car, and he raped her. Our next story, Nebraska officials find over 150 dead cattle on a farmstead. A father and son in west central Nebraska have been charged with animal abuse after authorities found over 150 dead cattle on their farmstead near North Platte. Larry E. McCulloch, 75, and Matthew J. McCulloch, age 41, reached charge last week with 10 counts of intentional animal abuse, according to Lincoln County court documents. The men who face up to three years in prison on each count both paid 10% of their $100,000 bail, $10,000, and were released from jail. According to an affidavit filed in court, deputies searched the man's property on Wednesday and found over 150 dead cattle. Deceased cattle were found in the same pastures where live cattle were housed and fed, according to the affidavit. So many dead cattle were piled up in one area that they were too numerous to count. Authorities seized more than 1,000 bulls, cows, and calves from the farmstead. The animals were taken to North Platte Sale Barn for inspection by a veterinarian. Residents in Lincoln and Logan counties assisted with the effort. Numerous cattle had to be put down on scene as they were very sick injured and dying, according to a statement from the Lincoln County Sheriff's Office. Deputies noted there was little food and not enough water to sustain most of the herd, according to the Lincoln County Sheriff's Office, which had been investigating the McCulliocks for several weeks with the assistance of the Nebraska Brand Committee and the Nebraska State Patrol. Our next story comes to us from Dolly Butts, the Sioux City Council is being asked to amend bike facility study for trail on the Gordon Drive viaduct. The Sioux City Council will be asked Monday to approve a resolution to amend the city's bike facility study to include a trail on the Gordon Drive viaduct. City staff are also recommending a trail connection on Cunningham Drive. The council approved the bike facility study on August 8. According to city documents, the Iowa Department of Transportation wants to see an updated bike pedestrian plan from the city to determine the appropriate accommodation. City staff have been working with the Iowa Department of Transportation on the planned reconstruction of the Gordon Drive viaduct. The 3,970 foot long viaduct which was built in 1937 and improved in 1963 and 1966 is deteriorating. The documents state that city staff prefer the single multi-use trail facility over sidewalks on each side of the viaduct, which is heavily used by pedestrians and cyclists. 
This will allow for ease of access for winter maintenance and accommodate a better bicycle connection along Gordon Drive, according to the documents. City staff and the Active Transportation Advisory Committee created the amendment to the bike facility study to include a trail on the Gordon Drive viaduct and a trail connection on Cunningham Drive, which would connect to the riverfront and Chautauqua trails. Last month, the city's Active Transportation Advisory Committee voted to recommend approval of the amendment. Our next story comes to us from the Associated Press. Uh, Europe pushes for the moon to have its own time zone. With more lunar missions than ever on the horizon, the European Space Agency wants to give the moon its own time zone. This week, the agency said space organizations around the world are considering how best to keep time on the moon. The idea came up during a meeting in the Netherlands late last year, with participants agreeing on the urgent need to establish a common lunar reference time, according to space agency's Pietro Giordano, a navigation system engineer. A joint international effort is now being launched towards achieving this, Giordano said in a statement. For now, a moon mission runs on the time of the country that is operating the spacecraft. European space officials said an internationally accepted lunar time zone would make it easier for everyone, especially as more countries and even private companies aim for the moon and NASA gets set to send astronauts there. NASA had to grapple with the time question while designing and building the International Space Station fast approaching the 25th anniversary of the launch of its first piece. While the space station does not have its own time zone, it runs on coordinated universal time, otherwise known as UTC, which is meticulously based on atomic clocks. That helps to split the time difference between NASA and the Canadian Space Agency and the other partnering space programs in Russia, Japan, and Europe. The international team looking into lunar time is debating whether a single organization should set and maintain time on the moon, according to the European Space Agency. There are also technical issues to consider. Clocks run faster on the moon than on the Earth, gaining about 56 microseconds each day, the space agency said. Further complicating matters, ticking occurs differently on the lunar surface than in lunar orbit. Perhaps most importantly, lunar time will have to be practical for astronauts there, noted the space agency's Bernard Huffenbach. NASA is shooting for its first flight to the moon with astronauts in more than half a century in 2024, with a lunar landing as early as 2025. This will be quite a challenge, with each day lasting as long as 29.5 Earth days, Huffenbach said in a statement. However, Having established a working time system for the moon, we can go on to do the same for other planetary destinations. Mars, standard time, anyone? Our next story, Nebraska sheriffs fined for appearance in a Herbster ad. Two Nebraska sheriffs and a sheriff's captain have been fined $1,000 each for appearing in uniform in an ad for former gubernatorial candidate Charles Herbster's campaign. Seward County Sheriff Michael Vance, Lincoln County Sheriff Jerome Kramer, 
and York County Sheriff's Captain Joshua Gillespie each agreed to pay a $1,000 civil penalty in settlements that were approved unanimously by members of the State of Nebraska's Accountability and Disclosure Commission. Under the agreements, the commission found that the three law enforcement officials had violated a state law barring the use of public resources for campaign purposes. In this case, their uniforms being the public resources. The advertisement ran on television stations in February and March of last year before being pulled by Herbster's campaign. That decision followed an inquiry from the Omaha World Herald regarding concerns that ad may have violated state law. A Herbster campaign spokesperson at the time said the campaign did not believe the advertisement violated state statutes. No taxpayer funds were used in making or airing of our advertisement. Nebraska sheriffs are elected officials and have earned the right to proudly wear their uniforms and as elected leaders to have a voice on important matters and issues, the spokesperson wrote in an email. York County Sheriff Paul Verbka, who also appeared in uniform in the Herbster ad, agreed to a $1,000 fine in a similar settlement approved in January. Verbka, in his settlement, said it was not his intent to violate state law, and had he known it would be a possible violation, he would not have agreed to appear in the ad. Both Vance and Kramer and Captain Gillespie included identical statements in their settlements. None of the three men could be reached for comment on Friday. All four of the complaints were filed by Cynthia Hartley. The initial complaint against Verbka was filed in March 2022. The other three were filed in January, just days after the NDAC announced the settlements with Verbka. All four of the law enforcement officials could have faced a maximum penalty of $5,000. Their cooperation resulted in the lower penalty. Herbster ultimately finished second in the GOP gubernatorial primary behind Jim Pillen, who went on to win election as governor in November. Our next story also comes to us from the Associated Press. States seek ways to curb deadly highway wrong way crashes. As Connecticut State Representative Quinton Williams was driving home from the governor's inauguration ball last month, he was struck head on by a driver who had entered the highway using a ramp going in the wrong direction, killing both Williams and the driver. Williams' death drew a spotlight on a kind of car accident that is particularly deadly, wrong way crashes. Each year in the United States, they result in 400 to 500 deaths, according to federal highway administrators. He was the life of every party. He had an infectious happiness about him. He knew everybody, and if he didn't, he would find a way to know them. According to State Senator Matthew Lesser, a fellow Democrat who described Williams as one of his closest friends. He was a rising star in the legislature with an incredible future in front of him, and the next minute he was taken away from us. Connecticut is seeking to join a growing number of states, including Massachusetts, trying to curb the frequency of deadly wrong-way highway collisions by turning to new crash prevention technologies. A $2.6 million pilot program in Massachusetts seeks to discourage wayward drivers by installing wrong-way vehicle detection systems at highway ramps. When the system detects a car entering a ramp in the wrong direction, 
It sets off flashing lights, signs, and at some locations, audible alarms to alert the driver. It gives you an opportunity to hit the brakes, realize you've gone in the wrong direction, and turn around, according to Massachusetts Highway Administrator Jonathan Culliver. If the driver continues despite the warning system, state police receive a notice of a possible wrong-way driver. The Highway Operations Center is also notified so they can immediately activate message boards on the roadway to let other motorists know someone might be driving in the wrong direction towards them. In Massachusetts, around 30 fatalities have been attributed to wrong-way vehicle crashes since 2014, according to officials. Goldiver said the state is drawing in part on wrong-way detection initiatives in other states, including Texas and Rhode Island. Older drivers, younger inexperienced drivers, and impaired drivers, including those under the influence of alcohol, tend to be more at risk of initiating wrong-way crashes, according to researchers. Most wrong-way crashes that result in a fatality occur at night, when it's harder to see signs. A disproportionate number also happen on the weekends, which could coincide with increased alcohol consumption. When wrong-way driver crashes happen, they generally lead to fatalities. They are some of the most deadly crashes we have, especially when they're on the interstates involving high speeds, Culver said. Last July, a crash involving a wrong-way car on an interstate in northern Illinois left seven people dead, including five children. In November, five people, including two children, were killed in Alabama when their car entered the highway, going the wrong way, and hit an 18-wheeler. At least a handful of states have launched programs to address these types of crashes. Last year, Kentucky received a $5 million federal grant to help prevent wrong-way crashes on interstates. And in 2017, Arizona announced what it called a first-in-the-nation pilot program to use thermal camera technology to address the long-way driving problems. Connecticut last year touted a $20 million program intended to install cameras on wrong-way crash, or excuse me, install cameras on wrong-way signs across the state that would trigger flashing lights when a wrong-way driver is detected, <clears throat> excuse me, after these types of crashes led to nearly two dozen deaths in 2022 a dramatic spike from earlier years. Several bills have been filed to expand that program. It's one thing to know that in the abstract, it's another to have a close friend killed, Lesser said, of the sharp increase in accidents. It can't but light a fire under my colleagues to explore policy solutions. And another story from the Associated Press. Pipeline debate at the center <clears throat> excuse me, of California carbon capture plans. Sacramento, in its latest ambitious roadmap to tackle climate change, California relies on capturing carbon out of the air and storing it deep underground on a scale that's not yet been seen in the United States. The plan, advanced by Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom's administration, comes just as the Biden administration has boosted incentives for carbon capture projects in an effort to spur more development nationwide. Ratcheting up 20 years of climate efforts, Newsom last year signed a law requiring California to remove as much carbon from the air as it emits by 2045, one of the world's fastest timelines for achieving so-called 
carbon neutrality. He directed the powerful California Air Resources Board to drastically reduce the use of fossil fuels and build massive amounts of carbon dioxide capture and storage. To achieve its climate goals, California must rapidly transform an economy that's larger than most nations, but fierce opposition to carbon capture from environmental groups and concerns about how to safely transport the gas may delay progress. Practical and political obstacles the Democratic-led legislature must now navigate. Last year, the California State Legislature passed a law that says no carbon dioxide may flow through new pipelines until the federal government finishes writing stronger safety regulations, a process that could take years. As a potential backup, the law directed the California Natural Resources Agency to write its own pipeline standards for lawmakers to consider, a report now more than three weeks overdue. While there are other ways to transport carbon dioxide gas besides pipelines, such as trucks or ships, pipelines are considered key to making carbon capture happen in the level California envisions. Newsom said the state must capture 100 million metric tons of carbon each year by 2045, about a quarter of what the state now emits annually. We do not expect to see carbon capture and storage happen at a large scale unless we are able to address that pipeline issue, said Rajinder Shahota, a Deputy Executive Officer for Climate Change and Research at the Air Board. State Senator Ana Caballero, who authored the carbon capture legislation, said the state's goal will be to create a safety framework that's even more robust than what the federal government will develop but she downplayed any urgent need to move forward with pipeline rules, saying smaller projects that don't require movement over long distances can start in the meantime. We don't need pipelines across different properties right now, she said. Last year's Inflation Reduction Act increases federal funding for carbon capture, boosting payouts from $50 to $85 per ton for capturing carbon dioxide from industrial plants and storing it underground. There are also federal grants and state incentives. Without charity on the state's pipeline plans, the state is putting itself at a competitive disadvantage when it comes to attracting projects, according to Sam Brown, a former attorney at the Environmental Protection Agency and partner at law firm Hutton Andrews Kurth. If the pipeline moratorium slows projects for three or four years, Brown said, why would you put your money into those projects in California when you can do it in Texas or Louisiana or somewhere else? The geology for storing carbon dioxide gas is rare, uh, but California has it in parts of the Central Valley, a vast expanse of agricultural land running down the center of the state. Oil and gas company California Resources Corporation is developing a project there to create hydrogen. It plans to capture carbon from that hydrogen facility and the natural gas plant that powers it. The carbon dioxide would then be stored in an old oil field that doesn't require special pipeline approval because it's all happening within the company's property. But the company also wants to store emissions from other industries like manufacturing and transportation. 
transportation that would rely on pipelines that cannot be built yet. These are parts of the economy that have to be decarbonized, said Chris Gould, the company's executive vice president and chief sustainability officer. It makes, econo it makes economic sense to do it, he said. Safety concerns increased in 2020 after a pipeline in Mississippi ruptured in a landslide, releasing a heavier-than-air plume of carbon dioxide that displaced oxygen near the ground. 45 people were traded at a hospital, and several of them lost consciousness. There are thousands of miles of carbon dioxide pipelines operating across the country, and industry proponents call the event an anomaly, but the Mississippi rupture prompted federal regulators to explore tightening the existing rules for carbon pipelines. Lupe Martinez, who lives in California's Kern County, worries what will happen as developers target the region for carbon storage. He used to spray fields with pesticides without protective equipment. On windy days, he'd be soaked in chemicals. Martinez, who watched some of his fellow workers later fight cancer, says he was lied to about the safety then, and he doesn't believe promises that carbon capture is safe now. They treat us like guinea pigs, said Martinez, a longtime labor activist. And here's today's digest. In Athens, Greece, a station master accused of causing Greece's deadliest train disaster was charged with negligent homicide and jail pending trial on Sunday, while Prime Minister Zakiros Mitosaktis agonized for any, or excuse me, apologized for any responsibility Greece's government may bear for the tragedy. And an examining magistrate and a prosecutor agreed that multiple counts of homicide as well as charges of causing bodily harm and endangering transportation safety could be sought against the railway employee. At least 57 people, many of them in their teens and 20s, were died or were killed when a northbound passenger train and a southbound freight train collided late Tuesday north of the city of Larissa in central Greece. Next in the series from Hong Kong, a Hong Kong pro-democracy group on Sunday said the National Security Police stopped activists from joining a highly anticipated protest that was canceled at the last minute by the organizer. The League of Social Democrats said police questioned four of its members on Friday and warned them not to participate in the march that was planned by the Hong Kong Women Workers Association. The League of Social Democrats is very angry about being threatened and hindered by the National Security Police over joining a legal protest, but it has decided to be absent under such pressure, the group said. Next in the series, uh, two people were killed and six others were injured in a shooting in a suburban Atlanta home Saturday night, where over 100 teenagers had gathered for a party. No suspects were apprehended as of Sunday morning, and it was unclear whether more than one person carried out the shooting. <clears throat> uh, next in the series, Egypt on Sunday sends 14 people, including rights activists, to prison terms ranging between 5 and 15 years on terrorism-related charges in a trial deplored <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> by rights groups as unfair. 
The verdicts were the latest mass sentencings in Egypt were reported by Egyptian Initiative for Personal Rights, one of the country's most prominent human rights groups. Next in the series, a massive fire raced through a cramped refugee camp for Rohingya Muslims in southern Bangladesh on Sunday, leaving thousands homeless, a fire official and the United Nations said. No casualties were reported immediately at Balakuhia camp in Cox's Bazaar district, according to Madul Haik, a fire service official. Next in the series, uh, Israeli cabinet ministers on Sunday advanced a bill that would allow Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to keep a $270,000 donation he received from a relative to pay for his legal bills as he fights corruption charges. The bill is part of a proposed overhaul of Israel's new uh, Israel's legal system by Netanyahu's new government. Next in the series, a cargo vessel ran aground in the Suez Canal on Sunday, but traffic through the global waterway was not impacted. Egyptian authorities said the Liberia-flagged MSC Istanbul, heading to Portugal from Malaysia, got stuck in a two-lane part of the Suez Canal, according to Admiral Osama Rabel, excuse me, Raibi head of the Suez Canal Authority. He added that tugboats were deployed to help refloat the vessel. Next in the series, voters in Estonia elected a new parliament Sunday with initial results suggesting the center-right reform party of Prime Minister Kaja Kalalas, one of Europe's most outspoken supporters of Ukraine, had won overwhelmingly when nearly all votes counted. Nine political parties and all fielded candidates for Estonia's 101-seat parliament, or Rigakogu. Over 900,000 people were eligible to vote in the general election, and nearly half voted in advance. Next, we have a sports story. The Metros win state hockey title. Nate Solma's unassisted goal in overtime lifted the Sioux City Metros to a 5-4 win over the Des Moines Oak Leaves in the Midwest High School's Hockey League Tournament Championship game Sunday afternoon. The Metros, comprised of players from Sioux City and several surrounding schools, captured their eighth state tournament title and the first since 2018. Solma was named the most valuable player of the three-day tournament in the West Des Moines uh, tournament this weekend. The Bishop Keelan Jr. scored six goals, which included a hat-trick in Sunday's championship game. The Metros finished fourth in the MHSHL regular season standings, earning the fourth seed in the postseason tournament after edging fifth seed Lincoln 4-3 in the quarterfinals Friday. The Sioux City upset the three-time defending tournament champion Kansas City Jets 7-4 in the semifinal Saturday night. In Sunday's title game, the second seed Oak Leaves took a one to nothing lead at seven minutes, 58 seconds into the first quarter on a power play goal by Cooper Michael. The Metros quickly took a one to nothing lead on an unassisted goal by junior defenseman Grant Harder at the 11:27 mark. 
In the second period, the Metros broke that tie on Solma's goal, assisted by the sophomore forwarder Carson Fitch at 6 minutes 43, and took a 3-1 to lead on senior defenseman's Jojo Hope's unassisted goal less than six minutes later. Charles uh, Rorbecki then scored for the Oak Leaves at 15.02 to cut the advantage to 3-2, to heading into the final period. Solma's third goal at the of the afternoon with an assist by Hope gave Sioux City a 4-2 lead at less than five minutes into the period. The Oak Leaves' Carson Clemenson then scored two straight goals, the first on a power play at 8.46, and the last on an assist from uh, Jacob Tomasek at 15.39 to tie the contest at 4-4, sending the championship match to overtime. Solma's unassisted goal at 7.58 into the sudden death extra period set off a wild celebration by the Metros and their fans at the Mid-American Energy Recplex. Today in history, on March 6, 1944, U.S. heavy bombers staged the first full-scale American raid on Berlin during World War II. On this date, in 1834, the city of York in Upper Canada was incorporated as Toronto. In 1836, the Alamo in San Antonio, Texas fell as Mexican forces led by General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana stormed the fortress after a 13-day siege. The battle claimed the lives of all the Texan defenders, nearly 200 strong, including William Travis, James Bowie, and Davy Crockett. And that brings us to the conclusion of reading the Sioux City Journal for this Monday, March 6, 2023. Your reader today has been Dave Sauerman. Thank you for listening to the Cyrus Program.